and week. Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua all celebrate their Independence Day today, and Mexico and Chile will this week. So a lot of the added joy that we will see in our neighborhood and many of us will participate in is because of this important uh, week and an important month uh, in our country for many of our friends, neighbors, brothers and sisters in Christ. So uh, we're grateful to call you neighbor, be your friend, be brothers and sisters in this way. We'll be, uh, again, Acts chapter 27, verses 1 through 27. We'll go through the entire chapter because near the end of Acts, we get these wonderful stories over the course of entire chapters. And so that's what we will do in the last three messages that will cover uh, the remaining portion of Acts. And then we'll have one message. Because this has been about a 63-week series for us, we're going to take one message and sort of review. Here's what God has been saying to us over the course of the past 20 years as a church as he has taught us through uh, Acts. Uh, today we want to talk about resurrection because resurrection really is one of the summarily uh, like doctrines that really summarize what it means for us to be Christians. Christians believe in a resurrection. This is what it means for us to be Christians. And I, I think as followers of Christ, we should understand that this is a reality for us. It's not just a wish and a hope and a nice story. What we truly believe is that in the first century, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was crucified outside of the gates of Jerusalem. He was buried in a literal grave. Three days later, he literally, physically, completely rose from the dead. He didn't have a long sleep. He died in our place and for our sins and then rose in victory. Early on Sunday morning, the Son of God got up and was alive and well Again, he appeared to Paul, he appeared to Peter, he appeared to the apostles, he appeared to 500 different individuals. Jesus is alive and well. To be a Christian is to have this story, this reality at the center of our hope. It doesn't mean that it is one of those things that takes place. This is at the center of our hope. It's not an elevated form of faith. Right? What I, what I mean by that is that there is not this upper echelon of Christians who believe in the resurrection and all of us got in without having to fully understand that reality, let alone believe that reality. And when we say believe, we're not just saying that I believe it's a great story that inspires us still today. We believe that this actually happened and what Jesus actually accomplished on the cross and in the resurrection changed everything. And don't, even if we don't believe, don't we want it to be true? You should want it to be true, even if you have a hard time understanding it. Think about it. You are fascinated, you and I. Fascinated with these stories of rehabbing a home, taking something that was dead and gone and dying and bringing it back to life. We're, we're fascinated with these makeover shows because it gives us hope that we actually can put a smart outfit together. If they can do it, so can I. We can resurrect our stories just by wearing the right things and making a couple of little home edits. We love rags to riches story. We love comeback stories in sports. See, it is woven into the fabric of our culture. We want resurrection to be true. We want resurrection to be true. And yet there's something that consistently happens in our modern frame of thinking. We believe that science perhaps has disproved that resurrection is possible. Isn't it true that dead things stay dead? Therefore, the Christian narrative must simply be a hope, a prayer, an inspirational story. But the God-man, Jesus Christ, didn't really die, didn't really raise from the dead. 
In other words, we take the resurrection and make it fit within our otherwise what we believe to be a cogent worldview. I think one of the best summaries of this particular worldview was found uh, in late 2011 and into 2012 in the Smithsonian Museum in New York. It was a Bible. And if you saw this Bible during that exhibit, you would have seen a Bible with pages and lines and paragraphs cut out and removed. It was the remnant of Thomas Jefferson's project. Thomas Jefferson cut out verses and and parts of verses and passages and literally pasted them into a separate piece of parchment paper and came up with two volumes, the philosophy of Jesus of Nazareth and the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. What you would have if you read one of those collections would be a story of Jesus without any of his claims of divinity and without any of his miracles. Suffice to say, that Bible at the Smithsonian with lines taken out and paragraphs cut out still had a lot of words left in it. Thomas Jefferson had a worldview which he brought to the Bible and he extracted from what would later be called the Jefferson Bible what he believed was the only plausible parts. Jesus may be a good teacher. He may have had some nice things to say to shape my philosophy, but all of this supernatural is merely impossible. It led Thomas Jefferson to say this, I am a sect by myself. I am a sect by myself as far as I know. How how painfully true this is. He constructed a worldview. He constructed a religion that was into his own mind, into his own frame of thinking. And I wonder if we don't do the exact same thing. To be sure, many of us, perhaps growing up in a religious environment, would never cut out the pages of Scripture. Oh, but many of those pages have never been opened. Many of those paragraphs have never been fully considered. Many of those sentences we may read but reject immediately as completely implausible. See, we may not take out words physically from the Scriptures. Oh, but we sure do it in the way that we live. What we have then is what theologians call deism. We believe that there is a God who is over all things. He's just not engaged. He is not present. He is not active with the natural world, including human beings. A God who may tell stories but doesn't engage with them. A God who may be over a grand narrative, but he has no power and he has no affection for what he has made. But, as Eugene Peterson writes, God is not a servant to be called into action when we are too tired to do something ourselves. Not an expert to be called on when we find we are ill-equipped to handle a specialized problem in living. God is not a buddy we occasionally ask to join us at our convenience or for our diversion. Resurrection destroys this view of God that many of us have. Resurrection is God showing up on His terms, not on yours. Resurrection is God coming to our aid by His grace, not by our merit. Resurrection is God breaking every curse, every sin, every problem, every, pla- every pain, every difficulty, stepping down onto earth's dirt and then rising up out of it when He died for our sins. Resurrection must be true if anything else about God is. Resurrection must be true. He either died and rose from the dead or he did not. Everything hangs on this reality. We don't have the luxury to say that's a hard truth. Let's move on to the nice teachings of Jesus. Everything that Jesus taught was building up to and betting on and anchored in the resurrection. And it's with that in mind 
that we consider resurrection today. Hear these words, Acts chapter 25, verse 1 through 27. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea and the thief, or the chief priest, rather, <laughs> that's, that's a funny slip. The chief priest and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem. Because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea. And that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, Let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Verse 6, after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many stories and serious charges or many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve death, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar." Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered to Caesar, you have appealed to Caesar, you shall go. Verse 13, now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man left in prison by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of commendation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accuser face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charges laid against him. So when they came together... Here I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Verse 23, so on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And they entered the audience hall with their military tribunes, tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about who the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought to live and should not live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. 
And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after uh, you, we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. These are the very words of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you that we do not have to wonder and wish and hope to discern what you are like. You have spoken truth, reality of your character first and foremost through your word. So give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, make us ready to confess and repent that we might become the people that you're calling us to be. Do all of this and more, Father, through your word, not by our effort, not by our will, but by your spirit is what you say. And so we are submissive to your spirit in this moment. We are looking to Jesus in this moment, and we ask you would do all of this for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. The Apostle Paul now has been in custody for two years. I want you to think about that. Two years over and over again, we've grown accustomed to him being accused of the very same things, and everyone in power is coming with the same conclusion. I find no guilt in this man. Nothing that you have claimed can we go forward with in a court of law in Rome. This is all a religious dispute. And yet Paul continues to remain in jail. The question for us is why? Well, look at verse 27 in the previous chapter, 24. Notice something about the language here of Felix, the previous power who is in charge before Festus takes over. Look at verse 27. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Procreus Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Felix knows. They became friends. Felix knows that Paul is not guilty. He understands. He was very advantageous in the relationship with Felix. He was trying to extort money from him, likely because Paul was still receiving funds from people who were helping him with his church planting and missionary efforts. And so Felix is trying to get a portion of that. But he knows Paul is not guilty. No, he knows he's not guilty, but he is actually very helpful for him. He keeps him in jail. He leaves him in jail because he is hoping to do the Jews a favor. He's hoping to do the Jews a favor. Their nefarious motivation of what they are believing about Paul is not about his teaching. It's that he is helpful to get to their ends. And as a new governor takes over, Festus, years after Paul has been first accused and no evidence has ever been brought against him, we'll see little has changed with the resolve of the Jews and little has changed with the great clarity and hope and faith that Paul has. Look again at verse 1, chapter 25. And three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him as, a, as king as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, verse 5, let the men of authority... Among you, go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Have we not been here before? The resolve of the Jews is consistent to dispose of Paul, and their methodology is no more creative. It's the same exact way. Remember back in chapter 23, 40 different men made a vow 
They made a vow together, communicating it to the high priest. We will not eat. We will not drink until Paul is dead. Interesting, isn't it? Two years later, Paul is still alive. We wonder if they ever ate anything. We wonder if they continued in that kind of evil plot. But notice now we have a different group of people. This is no longer a side hustle of the Jews. This is now a very central idea for them. These are the local authorities, all agreeing together for an ambush. So where 40 rogue men came to them and said, we're not going to eat, bring him to us, we'll ambush him. They're like, that was crazy to say you're not going to eat and drink. We're going to keep eating, but we're going to ambush him nevertheless. And so they bring this to Festus, and notice they bring it to him and request a favor. Not because Paul is guilty, not because we have any more evidence two years later, but a new power is taking over. We couldn't get through to Felix. Let's see if we can get through to Festus. Festus has only been on the job three days. Three days. Some of you are like, I had a hard first week. Literally, the Jewish power in your region comes to you three days in, and they want to kill somebody, literally, and they will see it as a favor to them. Keep in mind how early he is in this new job as we learn to unpack. He seems really eager, as all of us would be, to please everyone, to think through and do a really great job. And so his first response, knowing Paul's story, understanding that this would be a favor to the Jews, but out of step with Roman judiciary, he says no. He says, this is actually not how we do things. In my particular region, we're going to make sure to do it this way. And why do the Jews, though, want to bring Paul up to Jerusalem? It's because they know They have a lot more control there. The verdict and the sentencing are all but delivered, that he is guilty, he will be put to death. Festus still learning about this, understanding this, says, no, that's not how we at Rome in Rome do things. So he slightly is dismissive, but Festus invites them nevertheless to come to Caesarea. Look at verse 6. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tri- tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, verse 7, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Luke, the writer of Acts, is making sure we understand his readers. They've brought nothing new. They can't prove any of this. They are continuing to bring the same charges. Festus waits a little time. This is still the first week in office, or rather the second week. He's just moving into that, and he sits in the seat of judgment, a place that only he could sit over this presiding. And here Paul now is being invited yet again to face accusation. The injustice in all of this cannot be overstated. Two years in, even though there's new leadership, Paul is not getting any more justice. What's happening, Luke is teaching us through this, where previously Paul was hidden and helped by this Roman authority and by the Roman system around him. Now he's very liable. He is becoming more and more exposed through this system. In other words, I believe Luke's giving us a picture of God's grace, that sometimes through the government, God gives us incredible safe haven and protection, and a lot of times we must work for justice against things that are legislated, against things that are otherwise what we would call American, what we would call by our own national heritage. In this particular case, Roman or Jewish. Sometimes in God's grace, it is very clearly a work of his hand, and other times he is calling the church to work in response to injustice. And so we'll be asked, Paul rather, will be asked to defend himself a third time. Have you ever been asked to defend yourself more than once? 
Have you ever been asked to defend yourself more than twice, three times? This is three of five that Paul was going to be recorded here in the last portion of Acts to defend the same thing over and over again. I don't know about you, but I get real frustrated. I get frustrated, start putting my feet down and just going, listen, I already said it. I'm not even going to talk to you anymore. You're not listening to me. I don't like you. And in fact, I'll get so agitated, I'll start making accusations about them and about who they are and about their character and about what they think or what I rather think about him. He's been in front of the Jewish council, he's been in front of Felix, and now he is in front of Festus. All the while, it's the same Jewish agitation. It's the same Jewish agitators. And right in the middle of that, what he is having to defend is resurrection. See, this is the point that the legal system is not helping him because that's not something they can debate. See, Luke doesn't tell us what these many and serious charges that were brought to Paul, but he doesn't have to. It's the same thing. In previous scenes, previous chapters, it's been about defying the law, it's been about defiling the temple, and it's been about defaming Caesar. They reiterate this, no doubt, Paul is left to defend himself yet again. Look at verse 8. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem? There there be tried of these charges. But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal. In other words, like parenthetically, like, dude, this is your job. Why would we go somewhere else? This is what you do. Where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is anything to these charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered to Caesar, you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. Paul does what he's done before in the previous two times he's defended himself. He's directly addressed them. I am not guilty of these charges. These are wrong. When he says this, Festus changes his tune. Did you notice this? Where previously he's like, Roman law, this is what we do. Come to Caesarea. And then he goes to Paul. So what do you think about going to Jerusalem? You think this would be a good idea? Would this help you? Help me help you. Having initially denied the Jews' request, it now seems like he's leading, leaning in. And notice the repeated word we've heard a couple of times already, favor. This is the third time in just ten verses that Luke has employed the word favor in what's happening between the political authorities and the Jewish authorities. It's the same word in the original language, charis, where we get our word grace. In other words, they are asking for things to be done not on the basis of merit, not on the basis of righteousness, but on the basis of relationship. Not a great way to condemn a man to die. Not because he is guilty, but because they can foster a relationship through this. See, whereas before we saw the Roman powers working to help Paul, now we see the Roman justice system undermining Paul's cause. As one historian put it, Roman justice is being undermined by political calculations. For its own purposes, Rome needs to placate a powerful pressure group. In other words, Festus is this political newbie. Three days ago, he's like, we got to do this my way in Caesarea. He's like, ah, you got a lot of votes, Jews. That's a huge contingency of people. That's a lot of constituents that I don't want to upset. Three days later, he's rethinking things, right? He's rethinking whether or not that was a really good move. Not was it right, but was it helpful for him politically? 
So he's rethinking this. This principle that you and I perhaps know instinctually has become this added refrain made popular by a guy named Lord Acton. A, a politician in 1887 wrote in a letter to Bishop Mandel Crichton. He wrote this, power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. Paul had no choice. He had to ask for Caesar because he saw what was happening. Festus was in it for himself. Festus was going to do whatever the political winds of the time told him was most advantageous for his own political preservation. And don't you love Paul? It's incredibly convicting. Paul's like, if I've done something wrong, I'm not trying to not die. If that's what I've deserved, I want justice to be done. I wouldn't have said that. I don't know about you. <laughs> I would have gone, hey, if there really, I was like, if, if there is something, could we talk about it first? If you find something when you do that background check, could we just have a conversation? I'd like to explain it to you. He's just like, no. How, how beautiful to be so trusting of God and so desirous of following his will and his justice that you lay open and lay bare. Just like, if you can find guilt in me, fine, but I'm not guilty of these charges. Before they go to Rome, though, Festus has a very unique visitor. Look at verse 13. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus, verse 14. And as they stayed three, there many days, rather, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left in prison by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of commendation against him. Uh, I, I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met with the accuser face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charges laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had a certain dispute, point of dispute with him about their own religion, about, hear this church, about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Remember what Jesus promised Paul. He promised him he would go to Rome. So we see that the pathway to Rome is now becoming clearer and clearer for us, though coming in a very difficult pathway. And in the midst of that pathway, there comes this man, uh, Agrippa. Agrippa is actually one of the last rulers in the line of Herod. Herod the Great is someone we learn about often around Christmas time from Matthew chapter 2. He is the one that brought incredible agitation to Jesus. Needless to say, he follows in the custom of his grandfather and is not a nice person executing justice the way that he desires and living in a way that he desires. Bernice, interesting cultural note, is his sister whom it was pretty clear in the day he had a long-term and very dysfunctional incestuous relationship with. He brings her into this particular situation, and Festus looks to this man, Agrippa, who kills people on a whim, who has brought his plus one as his sister, and goes, what is your thoughts on this moral situation? Remember, Festus is new to his job. This dude doesn't know what he's doing. Three days in, they're like, kill this dude. Two weeks in, he's like, should I? A couple of days later, let's bring in Agrippa. It's just a train wreck from the beginning. And here's Paul 
in the middle of all of it. And it's amazing, in the middle of all of that brokenness, the one thing that Festus gets right is the real issue. The real issue is not who Paul is. The real issue is not whether he is innocent or guilty of these things. The real issue is resurrection. The real issue, the real point of derision here is resurrection. So having understood the context of Paul's words that we've looked at previously, we ought to now look at the content of them. The content of Paul's words, proclaiming that Jesus, who everybody knew was dead, proclaiming that Jesus is alive. I think it's good for us to consider the veracity, the truthfulness of Jesus' resurrection claims, not merely allowing it to be the backdrop of a simplistic faith, but allowing it to be the power of our everyday thoughtfulness about what it means to be a Christian. I want us to wrestle for just a minute. This is what is getting Paul in trouble, the resurrection. Oh, that the resurrection would get us into a little bit of trouble. That the resurrection would be such a prominent way of thinking for us that it would be the reason that we got into trouble. That the resurrection would be our only hope that ultimately would be juxtaposed, unlike sandpaper within a culture that anchors hope elsewhere. Consider again the words in verse 19 about a certain Jesus who was dead. Notice that's not what Festus is arguing. Certain Jesus who was dead. What's Paul asserting? That he's alive. Paul didn't assert that he was dead. Everybody knew that. He's asserting that he's alive. Festus knew this was the real issue. And as a church, I believe it's the real issue for all of us. In each of our cases, just as much as it's the issue in Paul's case, Jesus really rose from the dead or he really didn't. This is the crux of history. We often face this question, question of resurrection with what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. Don't you love that? Chronological snobbery. In other words, what that means, it's a really nice way to dig at all of us, where we think we are sophisticated, we are intellectual, we don't believe in silly things like the first century world did, that we have, through chronology, through time, grown up, been more um, sophisticated, more mature, and ultimately what it reveals is not necessarily a personal entitlement, though it perhaps does, but a collective and sort of a communal thought process that history is moving towards utopia. That the more we are alive, the wealthier we will become, the smarter we will become, the more moral we become. All of these things are sort of presumed within the modern mind. It's exactly what C.S. Lewis was talking about. We believe that we are smarter and better off from previous generations just because we're still alive and now we're leading things. We are the ones, we would use this language in any season of history, as the ones who have this understanding way better than anybody else. So what does that mean for resurrection? Well, of course they believed in resurrection. First century, they were superstitious. They believed in these kinds of crazy things. Like, not like us now, where we understand that dead things stay dead, right? We've done research, science, all of these things sort of disprove. I'd like to suggest to you that first century people are no less skeptical than we are. Consider, I don't know, Acts, the entirety of Acts. What is every apostle, and now in particular in this season of the story, what are they trying to convince everyone of? Resurrection. Nobody's like waiting around going, I bet people are going to rise from the dead today. Nobody is primed for this, not even those who are following the story of Jesus, who are reading the Hebrew Bible, who are believing that. Remember, this discontent and this disagreement was coming from within the religious people. People who you would think like, dude, you're following a God who made everything. 
He made eucalyptus trees and koala bears. He made all of this stuff out of nothing. He spoke and stuff happened. He created human being with all the intricate details and beauties of humanity. Even they are like, no, nah, resurrection probably, no, nope, that's not going to happen. Over and over again, they're trying to prove this. They are just as skeptical as we are. Religious folks, Jews, Greek folks, cultured people, all skeptical that resurrection could possibly be possible. This is just a small picture, I think, of the, the first century world not being ready for bodily resurrection. The leading scholar, li living scholar on resurrection in much of the New Testament is a man named N.T. Wright. He makes this particular case in a very dense and beautiful book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, that the birth of the early Christian church is unexplainable without the resurrection being a reality, precisely because they would not have believed in the resurrection otherwise. He says this, the early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings and sightings of the risen Jews, of risen Jews in order to explain a faith they already had. Nobody was expecting this kind of thing. No kind of conversion experience would have generated such ideas. Nobody would have invented it no matter how guilty or how forgiven they felt. No matter how many hours they poured over the scriptures, to suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and to enter into a fantasy world of our own. They didn't expect resurrection. They didn't expect a framework of resurrection. They were conditioned to believe, just as we are, that dead things stay dead. And so what N.T. Wright is suggesting, what we must wrestle with, is the existence of the early church, the existence of this church, the existence of the church still today is living, breathing proof that the resurrection is not just a hopeful, nice, inspirational story, but a reality that transformed the world. Not only does the first century uh, have this failed expectation, they don't believe in resurrection, but this transformation begins to take place, and then Paul invites investigation. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. To the right, after Romans, you'll get to 1 Corinthians. If you get to 2 Corinthians, go back to the left. See, the Bible itself, we don't give the Bible enough credit. We think the Bible always has this agenda to make us all believe in something that is not true. What if the Bible is actually giving us evidence to help see that the realities of what they are claiming are actually true. Hear this, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. Paul writes one of the earliest accounts of the resurrection here. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Hear this, church, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me." If we read the Bible like this religious document with this spiritual agenda, we will only read the content of what Paul is saying, that Jesus died, that Jesus was buried, that Jesus rose, and we say yes and amen, that it's part of the core composition of the gospel. But the dating of 1 Corinthians tells us it is not only one of the earliest documentations of the resurrection, but it likely came before two, if not all, four of the gospel accounts. In other words, Paul is writing this only 15 to 20 years after the resurrection. And so when he says, 
most of whom are still alive. What he is saying is, go talk to them. As I'm sending this to you, O church in Corinth, who needs a lot of prayer and a lot of help, if you want to believe in the resurrection, there are over 500 people you can go talk to. We text every day. I will give you their information. You can reach out to them. In fact, I'm going to name them James, Peter, me. You can talk to me. Still don't believe it. See, what Pastor Tim Keller writes in his book, The Reason for God, in answering a question of the resurrection reality, says Paul was inviting any who doubted that Jesus had appeared to people after his death to go and talk to them as eyewitnesses if they wished. Less than two decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, one couldn't simply say, well, that's just your perspective, Paul, because he's literally telling you to go talk to these people. He's literally telling you to investigate. Not to have mentioned, if you desired to go and visit one of these eyewitnesses, the Pax Romana, or the way that the Roman world had organized the world around them, they were able to travel much better in that particular season of history than ever before. They could, the way was literally paved to go and talk to these people about the resurrection. See, there was actually a very simple and natural disbelief that you and I have today in the resurrection. Skeptics could go and talk and even interrogate tons of living witnesses if they wanted to. Thirdly, everybody know where Jesus was buried. They could go to that tomb and find him not there. This is all taking place, again, within 15 or 20 years, not 2,000 years later, like some of us use as an excuse as to why we cannot believe such a claim. The church bears witness. Letters written 15 years bear witness. And by the way, you can still visit a tomb and it's still going to be empty. What is resurrection? All this to say, the viability and evidence of Jesus' resurrection, we should answer this question. What exactly are we actually talking about? Let's hear this. We are not talking about this nice story that will give us hope if we feel dead, be inspired when our backs are against the wall. What we truly believe, because the scriptures bear witness to it over and over and over again, is that the Son of God took on flesh, became a human being, lived, moved, had his being as a human being, and and at the age 30, died in our place for our sins. He did not fall asleep. He did not slumber. Romans were trained to kill. They know the difference between a dead body and a sleeping one. They kill this man, lay him in an actual tomb, and guard that tomb like they would have for anyone of this kind of influential cultural power. They guard that tomb. Three days later, he gets up out of the grave and then proves it by appearing to over 500 people, including those who would be scribes of his story, sharing that story all over the ancient world, giving birth to his bride, the body, the church of Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about when we talk about resurrection. That's what happened. So let's be clear. The Jews weren't upset because Paul was loud. They weren't upset because Paul had a story that was different than theirs. They weren't even upset that he had some fantastical story about resurrection. There would have been many stories thrown around like that. The problem that the Jews had is they couldn't prove it otherwise. They couldn't figure out to actually give evidence. Do you notice this is the issue with Paul's trial? They have no evidence because they can't find the body either. They don't know what happened either. They've got the records just themselves. See, the Jewish agitation is not because Paul is spreading a lie. It's because they're starting to figure out, we can't disprove this truth. 
We can't disprove this reality. The body couldn't have just been stolen and a resurrection fake because no one saw the resurrection coming. They weren't getting ready for him to rise from the dead. They would have thought, you know what we should do? Let's act like he rose from the dead, something we've never thought of before. Jesus couldn't have just fallen asleep and woken up. These Romans knew the difference. Resurrection could not have been a story invented later on. These documents are no more than 15, 20 years old from the event. It could not have been just a devised plan of a small group of believers. There were too many opportunities to correct and discredit such a story. This isn't some offshoot. They're dealing with the Roman Empire who discredits this kinds of stuff all the time. See, though the Jews claimed the story was fiction, they didn't have the luxury of just flippantly discarding it as if it had no weight. They couldn't do it. They tried and tried and tried again, and they had no evidence. See, what we have in Acts 25 is an outsider, Festus, one who didn't believe in Jesus, had heard of him, but didn't believe and trust in him, identifying the core and fundamental claim of Christianity. See, our faith rises and falls on resurrection. That's what Paul will go on to claim within verses 12 and 19 in 1 Corinthians 15. He understands that if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people should be most pitied. We should be pitied. It's not just a fantastical story. It's a reality that we anchor ourselves in. This truthfulness of the gospel is very difficult, I think, for us modern people to accept. We like to think and develop a faith that fits within a preconceived understanding of the world. And we weigh things based on that. In other words, Jesus and his resurrection are often not the foundational reality of our lives. Something else is our foundation. And that something else, whatever it might be, that begins to set the agenda. That thing becomes the soil by which we see can other ideas germinate and grow out of it. Either they'll bring life or they'll bring decay. If our modern view is some scientific process, that that's what's central to us, then yes, you cannot take resurrection into a lab and figure it out. But that was never meant to be the point. If money or power is central to you, if that's the central thing to you, then things like resurrection are useful as long as they are profitable to you. If being a good person is central to you, then the resurrection is only as useful as long as you have morally earned the reward of resurrection. Perhaps Jewish agitation is similar to our own source of discontent and disbelief. See, in our modern society, we like to hide behind this fuzzy, it can't possibly happen, while never actually looking at Jesus, while never actually considering his claims, while never actually submitting to his word. We can deny a lot of things we never investigate. But when you really look at this story, when you really read the words that Jesus claimed, when you read the words about him and the lack of evidence ever brought, you may chuckle at the Jefferson Bible. You may look at these Jews and go, why didn't you go interview more people? But what we really need to deal with is aren't we a sect unto ourselves as well? Haven't we, like Jefferson, haven't we, like the Jews, merely adopted and adapted simple some of the things of God into our lives that already fit what we have already decided is true? See, the tragedy that we are facing is that we need resurrection. Sin cripples, it kills, it destroys. And this is why resurrection is more than just an event in physical time, space, history, but the resurrection confirms your forgiveness 
The resurrection enables us to obey. The resurrection is Jesus' guarantee that we will one day rise from the dead. See, the tragedy of sin is that it doesn't wait for us to die. We have to deal with the effects of death every single day. But the beauty of resurrection is you don't have to wait for death to truly live either. You can enjoy life today. Christ has been risen from, has raised from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23 says, as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, he is a picture for us of our future reality in Christ. Resurrection was the dividing line for Paul and the Jews, for Festus and Paul, and resurrection of Jesus Christ continues to be the dividing line, continues to be the place where we must bow the knee, not adopt and adapt the things that we like from Jesus into our lives. The pomp and circumstance continues in verses 20 through 27. Agrippa with Bernice looking at and listening to Paul's story. Two completely morally imperfect and bankrupt people looking over someone and pronouncing whether or not he is righteous. A couple of themes continue in Festus' introduction of this moment. First, he acts like he doesn't know what to tell Caesar. You notice that in the last portion, 20 to 27. I need something to write him. He acts again like he doesn't know what's going on because his main audience is not Paul, it's not the Jews, it's King Agrippa. Remember, he's two weeks on the job. He wants another powerful person's vote of confidence. Secondly, the other thing that we begin to discern here is that Festus is incredibly terrified. He's scared to death of rejection. He's scared to death if he doesn't protect himself. And ultimately, if we don't believe in the resurrection, you will daily, consistently have to protect yourself and you'll be completely terrified. See, Festus is refusing to believe in the only reality that will ultimately protect him and ultimately give him peace. See, it's natural to be afraid when all of the work falls on your shoulders. You should be terrified. I should be terrified. I don't have what it takes. We don't have what it takes. A non-resurrection life is a life of scarcity because it's temporal. But a resurrection life is a life of abundance because it's eternal. The resurrection is a reality and the implication of God's power and grace. Each does a work to destroy these idols of self-protection and of fear. This is how we begin to live now. Resurrection is not a joy and a life that we wait for when the great golden bus from the sky comes and takes us and we'll all fly away. Resurrection begins now. We know this because Jesus showed himself to real, actual, living people. Here is life. Think about it. If Jesus defeated death, can't you trust him with your mortgage? If Jesus defeated death, can't you trust him with your vocation? If Jesus defeated death, can't you seek his help when you're thinking about where to live? If Jesus defeated death, won't he meet you in your depression? If Jesus defeated death, won't he meet you as you learn and discern your own mental well-being? If Jesus defeated death, can't you confess your sin to him? If Jesus defeated death, can't he help you in your marriage? If Jesus defeated death, can't he help you instruct your children? If Jesus defeated 
to death, won't he be the enduring reality in life despite whatever longings and trappings and bitterness and rage and evil and envy come into your heart? Can't he be your hope? Can't he be your security? Can't he be your joy? Can't he be your life? Can't he be the framework and foundation of all the things that he has said yes and amen to that you might have life today and it might be for your joy? Would you bow your head and pray with me? Heavenly Father, what a story you have told. What a story you are telling. That at just the right time, Heavenly Father, you sent your one and only Son. Not to craft a fantastical story that would merely inspire us and make us feel good, but who would live and move and have his being die in our place for our sins and rise in victory over Satan, sin, and death, that a new heaven, a new earth, and a new reality, and a new kingdom would break in right here and right now. And so, God, may we be a resurrection people. May we be a people who wrestle with the historical claims of Jesus and bow the knee to the kingship of Jesus. Would it not merely be a nice story? Would it be the foundation of our lives? We ask that you would do this, that we might see life spring up out of death in our hearts, life spring out of death in our neighborhood, in our city, in our world, that you, Father, would continue to make your will come and your kingdom come, your will be done right here on earth as it is in heaven. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.